0: So, uh, as Michael mentioned, we're going to continue on uh, in 1st Timothy, and we're going to be in chapter 3, so you can go ahead and navigate there. And uh, while you're doing that, I'll just kind of be transparent with you for a second, if you don't mind. So, I was woken up at like 4.40 a.m., sat up straight in bed, because we had some wildlife around our house, Specifically, skunks didn't see them, but dag on, knew they were, knew they were around. Many of you know we kind of live on the ravine there, so you know, it's like a wild kingdom at our house half the time. And I'm telling you what, it was so strong. Like in the summertime when we sleep with the windows open and everything, I get it, right? It happens. But man, house is all closed up it was like they were wandering around inside. It was like a skunk Dutch oven. <laughs> anyway, you know, so anyway, my point is, I kind of had that lingering this morning, you know what I mean? Like, didn't get hit with it, right? Now, it's not physically honest or anything like that. But, so I, I, went, I wandered around our lower level just to make sure nobody was inside uh, was that strong and uh, lit a candle and whatnot, so anyway. So, our time this morning, as Michael mentioned... We are going to be looking at what Paul writes to Timothy uh, about deacons. Uh, Very, very similar to what we saw last week with regards to elders. And our our time this morning is just going to be verses 8 through 13. And it's going to break down into two primary sections. Uh, The first section is just going to be verses 8 and 9. And we're just going to call that, Dignified Service Requires a Clear Conscience. Dignified Service Requires a Clear Conscience. Um, The second section will be verses 10 through 13. We're going to call that Dignified service results in a high standing and great confidence. Dignified service results in a high standing and great confidence. And actually, when you hear me up here, oftentimes you'll hear me use the term principle. You know, my first point that I want to make this morning, my first principle, some of that's left over from my BSF days. Michael refers to them as takeaways. You know, what are our takeaways from this passage? Our two takeaways, our two principles, are going to be the exact same as these sections I've titled. Um, So, let's go ahead and get into this this morning. And as we get into this, much like last week, I would encourage all of us To hear and read and think about the things that Paul is saying, as pertains to deacons, knowing knowing that that should be true of each one of us here in the body of Christ. Just like last week when we saw those qualities and those characteristics that Paul said, these are non-negotiable for those who are going to be overseers and elders in the body of Christ. We said those should be true of us as well, even if we don't occupy that particular office and have that title associated with our name. The same is true of deacons and deaconesses. right? We should embody each of these things that we read here this morning. And so, even though here at Renew, while we don't have official deacons and titles like that, and that's simply just a function of our size, really, you know, but when we look around, each one of you knows how much people here in our fellowship contribute when there are needs. right? Just because we don't have these, this official board and, and titles and, and deacon so-and-so doesn't mean that you all don't operate and behave exactly like deacons maybe in larger churches and like the people Paul is discussing here. I am continually amazed. I mean, absolutely blown away and flabbergasted with how much service and the hearts that each one of you have when we have a need here in our fellowship. You know, thinking about um, Rob Kreider's celebration of life service, since that was something somewhat recent. Man, the way this body of believers stepped up and the way each of you were able to do stuff to contribute to that was just amazing. It was wonderful. And so you should be proud of yourselves for um, operating in a very dignified way. So, Paul says this in verse 8. He says, Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued, or addicted to much wine, or fond of sordid gain. So the first thing he says there is, likewise. In other words, just like everything he has said about elders and overseers, deacons also should embody those traits, and they should be men of dignity. And so we see a a soft transition here. This isn't like this hard, like he has to switch and turn his attention now completely to deacons as though it's a totally different subject matter, but rather, it's a soft transition. Likewise, just like I've said about overseers and elders, deacons likewise should be men of dignity. And the only difference that we see really is the operation of elder, his primary role is to teach. That's the main difference between overseers and deacons is that overseers and elders are called and required to teach. Now, we said last week, Paul doesn't say how often, how frequent, but he does say able to teach. And we believe here that that should be an activity that is practiced by elders. Once again, you'll see Michael here regularly You see me a little bit more, and you see David sometimes. We don't have a strict sort of schedule, but we believe that elders should be both able to teach and teaching at some level in their lives. Many of you are teaching your kids and others. But the same spiritual requirements are all still required of deacons. The term... Diakonia literally means serving and ministering. That's where we get the term deacon. It comes from the root word of diakonia. It means service or ministry. Um, Think about our defense. We have a, what do we call it? We say we have armed services, right? We have defense services here in our country. What do they call it over in Britain? They call it a ministry of defense. Their parliament has very different departments and they call them ministries. That's because the term for service and ministry comes from the same root word. We even mentioned last week that in Acts 6, the term for serving tables and the term for ministering the word came from the same root word. I personally believe, and we shared this when we went through Acts chapter 6 when we were in the book of Acts, I believe that the elders, um, the apostles, when they were presented with that need, that the distribution of food and the unequal treatment of the widows and the women, when that came to their plate and they were presented with that, if it had made sense for them practically to serve those tables and distribute that food, that they would have done that. They would have taken that upon themselves and they would have just gone ahead and done that if it had made sense. But they knew their first calling was to minister the word of God. And they said, we can't go and serve tables if it takes us away from the very first calling that God has placed upon our lives. And so therefore, they said to the the congregation, choose among yourselves men who have good reputation, who are wise, who are filled with the Holy Spirit. And give them the responsibility of this duty. And my point here is that Both are equal. Both are extremely important. The serving of tables and the ministering of the word are both extremely important in the body of Christ. And they come from the same root word. And he says here, deacons likewise must be men of dignity. The the idea of of being dignified, I said last week, kind of summarizes all these characteristics. Um, Just like being above reproach, being of good reputation, the primary quality of a deacon is dignity. Dignity means not double-minded and double-tongued, he said. Uh, Dignity is not addicted to wine. Dignity is not fond of sordid gain or love of money. Dignity means managing your home and your household and your life well. And so we're going to come back to a couple of these. Last week I mentioned that with regards to not being addicted to wine and managing a household and not loving money, I said, well, we'll talk about that next week. So let's spend some time looking at that for a second. Look at verse 9. We'll, we'll, we'll continue in verse 8 here. Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain. Do you remember what he said in verse 3 about elders? Not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, uncontentious, and free from the love of money. So we see kind of a parallel here, right? Now, couldn't he have just left it with likewise, be men of dignity? Couldn't he have just said, hey, just like we talked about for the elders, don't be addicted to wine, don't be pugnacious and contentious, Be gentle, don't have a love of money. Likewise, deacons, be men of dignity and move on. But he doesn't do that. For some reason, Paul felt it important to reiterate that when it came to money and alcohol. Isn't that interesting? Isn't it interesting in verse 3 that he connects being contentious and pugnacious with being addicted to wine? and to some degree, a love of money. I think what Paul might have in mind here is an overarching concern about just being addicted in general. That anything in our lives which takes a greater precedent and a stronger role than Jesus himself now becomes a problem for a dignified life. When wine and alcohol become more important to you that begins to compromise a dignified life. When loving money becomes more important to you than Jesus himself, that begins to compromise a dignified life. And I mentioned a second ago that I think maybe he had in mind just a a general concern for addictions and those things which take a greater precedent in our lives than Jesus. Well, think about what addictions do to us when, when they're not being fed and served, we get kind of agitated, don't we? We get a little frustrated. When we can't meet this desire that is welling up within us, that we're striving for so greatly, we get contentious. We stop making prudent decisions. We stop being responsible. We stop living a life that is of good reputation and above reproach. I even think about the idea, the behavior of being addicted to wine, to alcohol, whatever it might be. You know, we always kind of jump and think when somebody's physically inebriated, right? When the chemicals are literally in their system and how that impairs their judgment, how that affects their lifestyle and their behavior in that particular moment. That's what we generally kind of assume. And that there is some truth to that, obviously. But, you know, addictions don't always just control us when the chemicals and the substances is physically in us. But, you know, when you're, when you're kind of preparing your life and you're trying to order your steps and you're trying to cr- create circumstances for that next opportunity to use, it's controlling you. Because everything you're structuring in your life is about getting to that next opportunity, the next point to physically have it in you. And then afterwards, afterwards, when you're coming down, you're coming off of using. It's affecting you. How many of you would like to hear a message on Sunday morning after somebody who was out carousing all night last night? How would you like to hear a, a sermon and a message about somebody or by somebody who's really hung over and, and dragging and recovering from the effects? Of living a lifestyle that's addicted to alcohol the night before. So it can constantly be affecting. Not just while somebody is consuming, but leading up to it, coming after it. And think about money as well. Think about the strategies that people who have a love for money, think about how they prioritize their lives. Do you want an elder or a deacon who has this... Unquenchable love for money. Handling the offering. I mean, that was one of Judas's big, big black marks on his record. When, when Mary used some of the money to buy the perfume to anoint Jesus, and Judas said, What the heck? Why did we waste money on that? We could have given this money to the poor. The text says, Judas didn't care about the poor. And it it follows it up and says, because he was in charge of the money box, he used to skim off the top. He used to pilfer from it for himself. And Jesus knew that. Jesus is the one who called him and put him in charge of the money box. But you don't want that, as somebody who is operating as a deacon and serving and ministering in the body of Christ, to have a love for money that's completely unhealthy. Turn to Proverbs chapter 20 with me, if you would. A couple of references regarding some addictions. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1. Wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. Turn to Proverbs chapter 23. Proverbs chapter 23, verses 29 to 35. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Well, those who linger long over wine those who go to taste mixed wine. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and your mind will utter perverse things and you will be like one who lies down in the middle of the sea or like one who lies down on the top of a mast. Wow. Turn to Luke, chapter 12. I'll say this. Alcohol is not forbidden in the Word of God. And there are some moments where it's encouraged. But I read an article that says that the warnings and the concerns about drunkenness outweigh any encouragement that the Bible gives roughly 3 to 1. Luke chapter 12, look at verse 45 and 46. This is what... um, Jesus kind of parallels drunkenness with condemnation and unbelief. But if that slave says in his heart, my master will be a long time in coming and begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour when he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. Turn to Luke chapter 21. Chapter 21, verse 34 through 36. Be on guard that your hearts may not be weighted down with dissipation (laughs) dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. And that day come on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of all the earth. But keep on on the alert at all times, praying in order that you may have enough strength or have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Turn to Romans chapter 13. Romans 13, verses 13 and 14. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but... Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Now the reason back to flip to First Timothy. the reason we kind of navigated some of those passages is because we see a parallel between drunkenness versus staying awake in the world and staying connected to Jesus. Turn to Timothy. 6, verse 9 and 11. 1 Timothy 6. 9 through 11. Look at what Paul says about money. But those who want to get rich fall in temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith... And pierce themselves with many a pang. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. And then the last one I'll have you turn to is turn to uh, Hebrews 13. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. Let your character be free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. And so that first group of passages reveals sort of a parallel of almost being asleep in the world with drunkenness. The second group of passages that we've navigated to reveals what a love of money does. Paul calls it the root of all sorts of evil. Think about how the heart can be controlled and manipulated so easily when we love anything in this life more than we love Jesus himself. And these are the things that can destroy a local church. We've seen it in the news over and over about church leadership somewhere that has fallen as a result of loving money and being greedy, maybe misusing the church's resources or loving alcohol and that becoming this trend in that person's life to the point where no longer making sober, wise, prudent decisions or maybe being angry and contentious with fellow believers in the body but what I love here is in verse nine, we see almost almost a cure for this, if you will. An alternative, if you will. Um, Paul says, "But holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. In other words, instead of being motivated by wine and money, hold tight to the things of God. Instead of being double-tongued, addicted to wine, fond of sordid gain, instead, but, holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. That's what he says is to be the alternative to loving things of the world. And he makes this reference to this mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. That's a term that Paul uses a lot in his texts. He uses the word mystery a lot. And he's not saying that God is being coy with us and only giving us little snippets. He's talking about the things that have been revealed through Christ Jesus. There was a time when the prophets of old looked forward to what God was going to do. But they only had part of God's plan. They had only been given by God X amount. And God has progressively and progressively revealed more and more over time about his redemptive plan. And he says, hold tight to what we know, which is Christ Jesus, his incarnation. God himself came in the flesh, bought us with his life in his own blood, died on the cross, rose from the dead, sits at the right hand of the Father, and will return and take us home to him. Hold tight to these things. They were formerly unknown. They were formerly a mystery. And now God has revealed these things to His people. Hold tight to this. This is the faith in which we have been saved. I think about when... Paul even discusses some of the gifts and and other things. And he says, there will come a time when some of these are no longer needed because God will have revealed things to the fullest. You see, a lot of these guys were living the New Testament in real life. God was giving them revelation through his Holy Spirit and instructing them what to pen and what to write. And Paul knows that there was going to come a time after his time here on earth when everything would be done, God's word would be complete inerrant and preserved and give us everything that we need to know for life and godliness. And so Paul says to be dignified, to live a dignified life, to be a man of dignity rather than being swayed by all of the desires of the world, hold tight to this, the faith in Christ Jesus. Hold tight the principles and doctrines of faith with a clear conscience. We should be able to say with a clear conscience that we served with unwavering dedication. We did not prefer the things of the world. Won't that be a great thing to say about your own life? I wasn't swayed by the world. I served with an unwavering dedication to Jesus Christ himself. And I can say with clear conscience, he was number one in my life. What a wonderful testimony to have, both now on this side of heaven and when we see him face to face. Turn to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter one, we're gonna look at verses twelve through fourteen. Nope. Wrong reference. My <laughs> bad. There's a there's a reference. There's a reference in uh, First Corinthians where where Paul speaks about ministering to the church in Corinth with a clear conscience. Having held nothing back, right? fully sold out for the faith. And so that's what I was thinking I was referencing there. But a clear conscience. Some of you might know from our monthly gathering this month earlier at the Dietrichs. I had referenced a video that Michael and I had discussed probably ten years ago at this point. And it was a British radio show host who was interviewing Rob Bell. And it was on camera. And the thing that was fascinating, I remember Michael and I having this discussion after watching this video. The thing that was absolutely fascinating was that you could see at this key point that after Rob Bell had espoused and he had um, argued this particular agenda of his that he really wanted to get across to the audience and this radio show host, this British host asked him a very pointed and very direct question. And you could see that moment where Rob Bell had to make a decision. He had to make a decision to abandon the faith, to abandon having a clear conscience before Jesus Christ in favor of continuing to hold tight to this worldly agenda that he was espousing. And you could just see it. You could see that moment. You could see his face change where it was like, I'm going to just continue on in this particular path, in this personal, worldly agenda that I'm trying to promote in lieu of having a clear conscience for Jesus himself. Think about that. I mean... So I said our first main point is going to be that dignified service requires a clear conscience. Dignified service requires a clear conscience. We can't love money more than Jesus. We can't love alcohol more than Jesus. Even being double-tongued implies being manipulative and coercive for convenience. right? Isn't that kind of what we see when somebody's double-tongued and hypocritical and they say one thing to somebody over here and they say something else over here? What they're ultimately doing is they're manipulating the circumstances. They're manipulating the situation. They're using it for personal gain. We can't love money. You know, one of the things that I think is going to come up here for the church very soon, if it hasn't already, is the new advent of being able to gamble on our telephones. I mean, how many commercials are we seeing for DraftKings, FanDuel, MGM, I mean... It's just prolific. I mean, it's, it's, it's commercial after commercial after commercial now that all you need is one of these and a heart for the love of money and you got it right here at your fingertips. I was watching a quick little sketch with Kathleen Madigan, the comedian, and she talked about how she had actually endeavored into... Downloading some of these apps and beginning to gamble herself, and she found herself gambling on matches and games overseas that she had no idea. She talked to she goes this funny routine about gambling on a match in, of cricket. She goes, "I don't even know what cricket is," and yet because this was at her fingertips, it was enticing. It was calling to her. And the funny thing that she said, I thought she said, "Her phone will sit there and chime and ding and alert her via these apps constantly." And she found herself wanting to pick these things up. And she <laughs> likens the chimes and the dings. She said, I'm convinced that's the devil's doorbell. And I thought that was really cute. How true is that? You know, when those, when those gambling apps are chiming and dinging and getting her attention on her phone, she said, that is the devil's doorbell itself. I thought that was a really, really good description. Look at verses 10 through 13. And let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Uh, Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So he says in verse 10, And let those also be first tested, and then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. So men who are candidates for deaconship should be tested. right? Remember what he said in verse 6? about elders, and not a new convert, lest he become conceited and fall into the snare of the devil. The same is true for deacons. Um, Their lives should be observed first, evaluated, examined. We're not talking about some sort of administered test where you sit down with a number two pencil, fill in bubbles. We're talking about a pattern. The lives should be examined before being able to operate and serve in a certain capacity. It should be observed over time. One of the reasons we mentioned that an elder should not be a new convert is there hasn't been time to evaluate his life. There hasn't been time to look at how he lives for him to be above reproach and develop a good reputation. The same is true here. It's not like receiving tenure either. How many of you know that a lot of Collegiate professors pride themselves on having received tenure. You know that's important to them because, in a sense, it means I don't want to say that they're untouchable, but Matt's nodding his head. They're kind of untouchable. They've they've occupied this particular position. They've um, elevated and arrived. Now they can kind of sit back and coast. What Paul says here about evaluating and testing is a, a present tense. means ongoing. Not just look at what their lives have been like when being considered for deacon and serving and ministering to the body of Christ, but continually. Their lives need to continually be evaluated and looked at. It isn't like they just get to kind of go, oh good, I'm in, now I can relax and coast. Now it doesn't matter. No. Continually. Ongoing. You don't get to just kick back and put your feet up. Paul writes, and we'll get to this later on in our series, he writes this to Timothy in chapter 5, verse 22. Don't appoint deacons and elders in haste. Right? He cautions Timothy, think about who you're laying hands on and appointing to these positions first. And I think it's a throwback to this. They should be tested first. Don't appoint in haste. I mentioned Acts 6 earlier. You know, the criteria that the apostles gave to the congregation was don't do this in haste. Choose men among yourselves who are of good reputation, who are wise, and who are filled with the Holy Spirit. You know who they are among you. Choose them accordingly. Don't do it in haste. It should be good reputation. Now, Verse 11. Verse 11 says, Women must likewise be dignified. This is the moment Matt's been waiting for. Some of you may have a translation that says, Women? Some of you may have a translation that says, Wives. The word that Paul uses there is the same word. The word for woman, the word for wife, is the same word. And so... This particular verse right here has been the subject of much debate through the ages and it will continue to be a a subject of debate. Now, you obviously want to know where we stand. We can't get up here and always tell you this is a highly contentious, highly debated verse and not give you some conclusion or some position. I believe that Uh, Paul is probably referring to wives of deacons for several reasons. But what I think is really important after I say that, whether somebody holds that he is referring to women deaconesses, that's kind of redundant, but women being deacons or deaconesses, whether whether somebody holds that he is saying women, or whether somebody holds that he is referring to the wives of deacons, the practical application in the end and conclusion and doctrine really should be the same. And you go, what do you mean by that? I mean that the the context of Scripture as a whole certainly reveals that God uses women regularly in the body of Christ to minister and serve. So whether you hold fast and tight that this is women deacons or whether Paul is referring to wives of deacons, your systematic theology, your biblical theology, should still land at the same place, which is God uses women for service and ministry regularly. Now, having said that, I believe that part of the explanation for this to assume that Paul is referring to wives of deacons, I'll say is the context in the fabric of first Timothy first. Um, think about this. Paul had in mind as elders and overseers men in mind as elders and overseers because the primary role is teaching. And then in verse eight, he transitions and likewise says deacons should be men of dignity. Okay? So he's establishing a fabric whereby he's discussing the role of, of men. Then in verse 10 he says, let these also be tested. Let these, men of dignity, that he's referred to in verse 8. But then in verse 11 he shifts and he changes to women in just this one liner. okay? But in verse 12 he comes back and he says, let deacons be husbands of one wife. So I said that I believe that the pattern just here in the immediate context points to wives of deacons, because it seems a little strange that he would be discussing men in this fabric and then in one line jump out and talk about qualifications of women and then jump back to men again and use a reference like being husbands of one wife. Now, I know in our contemporary culture that makes a lot of sense. Now that we have thrown binary men and women out the window to say, oh, a woman must be the husband of one wife does kind of make sense in contemporary culture. I'm being sarcastic. But in this context, it seems a little strange and a little forced that Paul would then follow that up again and say deacons need to be um, husbands of one wife if in fact he was referring to women and some new qualifications for women being deacons. So, I think that the immediate context of Timothy points to the fact that while well, Paul probably has in mind wives of deacons. Now, the second thing is the cultural fabric of Ephesus specifically. Right? We know that Paul is addressing chaos... In the churches at Ephesus and Corinth, we know that women were maybe usurping God's role for them in the body. Michael kind of discussed that when we looked at chapter two of First Timothy. Um, they were going so far as to appear like the pagan cultures around them. You know, remember how they were adorning themselves, how they may have been dressing their clothing, their garments, um, running around with their heads uncovered, which culturally at the time, you know, indicated. Um, lots of different things that were not appropriate, and they were potentially bringing shame on their husbands in public. And so I said all that to say, culturally, the fabric of Ephesus, and Corinth specifically, I think that Paul would have likely had the wives of deacons in mind when he writes this, because think about, even today, do we not also take into consideration the wives of those who are in leadership? Don't we still look at church leaders and by extension consider what the lives of their wives looks like? And so I think part of what Paul has in mind here is as men of dignity are being considered for deaconship, you must also be thinking and looking at their wives as well. So verse 11, wives must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Isn't that what you would want to see out of your elders and your deacons? That they would have wives who are not malicious gossips, but temperate and faithful in all things? Not running around usurping their husband's authorities in church. Not running around dressing and looking like prostitutes outside the church. Not behaving in ways that usurp God's role for them in the body of Christ. I believe that's partly why wives of deacons should be understood here. Paul's saying their lives also should look in order. Now the third group, the third reason is that the cultural fabric of the early church at large. Right? So we've talked about the immediate context and the pattern and the fabric of 1 Timothy that's writing, Paul's writing. Then we talked about what Ephesus and Corinth and other cities look like culturally at the time. Now the broad context, the broad context of the early church at large. What we see in scripture as a whole would be that the early church would have certainly been marked by husbands and wives opening up their houses and welcoming in believers in the early church. That's the model that we see throughout scripture. We know that Priscilla and Aquila entertained, hosted church in their own home. They welcomed Paul in when he got there, right? There's other examples where we have husbands and wives cooperatively Extending hospitality to the body of Christ and opening their homes and serving the body of Christ in the early church. We do it today. We get together, try to on a monthly basis, where husbands and wives have opened their homes to the rest of us. And so it's very likely that Paul is looking at the context and the fabric of just how the early church operated and he's thinking about wives of deacons who are kind of operating as deacons themselves. Not only are these men of dignity uh, and these deacons, but also these wives of these deacons are operating in a very similar capacity already. And when they operate in this capacity alongside their husband in the early church, they should not be malicious gossips, but temperate and faithful in all things. So... Whether we interpret this as women deacons or wives of deacons, the larger biblical context of Scripture clearly reveals that God calls women to serve and minister in the body as well. Turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Wait, 16. 16. Sixteen. Sorry. Now, I actually want to read verses one through sixteen, but I'm not going to. I'm going to highlight the women for you for a second. In verse one, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, which is at Centria. Verse three, Prisca, or Priscilla. Um, Verse six, Mary. Verse seven, Junius. Verse twelve, Tryphena or Tryphena and Tryphosa. Uh, again in verse 12. Persis. Verse 13. Re Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, also his mother and mine. Jump down to verse 15. Julia and a sister in verse 15. Think about that. Turn back to Timothy. We see something similar in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, but... Look at all those women. Look at all those women that Paul says, greet them, commend them. These are fellow workers in the faith. They've opened up their houses. They've served. They have blessed God's people. And so there's many other passages as well. And the point is that the the biblical context as a whole is that God uses women. So, our last section, verse 13. Serving... Well obtains a high standing and great confidence in the faith. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So Paul says two things about those who serve well. They will receive two things. The first is high standing, and the second is a great confidence in the faith. So I believe that deacons and deaconesses who serve well receive high standing from those they serve. Isn't that true? Isn't there a respect that is earned and garnered for somebody who serves well in the church? Those they serve hold them in high standing and have a great confidence in the faith. Do you not have a greater confidence in the people who serve well? You get somebody that's ministering and serving poorly, flippantly, with disregard. Well, you don't hold them in high standing. They don't get greater confidence in your mind. But those who serve well are in high standing and have a greater confidence in the faith. I believe that's what happens externally. I also believe there's an inner confidence that's gained in Christ by those who serve well. You say, what do you mean by that? I'm not talking about bragging and boasting about accomplishments. I'm talking about a confidence to lead and minister others. When you lead well and minister and serve well, as Paul writes, you have a greater confidence in what you do. Not bragging, not boasting, but you're proud about the way that God is using you. And there's a confidence that exists in that. I believe that There's also confidence when we stand before Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about standing there going, Jesus, look at my merits. Jesus, look at my resume. I know I'm here because I was so good. That is not what it's going to be about. But we will have a confidence as we stand before him and see him face to face that hopefully, in a humble way, we say, I served well, Jesus. I loved you and I loved your people that you entrusted to me with all my heart. I want to be in high standing and stand before you with great confidence, Jesus. Because I was as obedient as I could be. Turn to 1 John, and then we're about done. 1 John 2, 28. 1 John 2, 28. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. You know, John was writing to his confi- his his, his um, congregation, his audience, and he was contrasting the, the lives of believers who were operating according to sound doctrine contrasted with those leaders who had come in and were just telling all kinds of lies and had gone out from them. And he's trying to reassure them. They went out from us because they were never part of us. And he says, when Jesus comes again and when Jesus appears, you won't have to shrink and cower and be afraid of Jesus' coming. You will stand there with confidence knowing that you are in him. And the last... 2 Timothy... 2 Timothy 4, verses 7 and 8. You've heard this in our 1 Timothy series already. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. I mean, think about that. I said, this is not about boasting and bragging. Paul's not boasting and bragging. Paul is standing there with confidence as he writes Timothy, maybe in his last days, and saying, I've fought the good fight. I've run the race. I've been as obedient to Christ Jesus as I can be. And I say this with a clear conscience and with all confidence in the faith. I'm excited to see Jesus because I've kept the faith, Paul says. May that be true, Of all of us, dignified service, serving God in the body of Christ with a dignified life results in high standing and great confidence. It results in high standing and great confidence in the eyes of those and the minds of those we serve. And it results in high standing great confidence in ourselves in light of the blessing and the ultimate glorification that we will have in Christ Jesus when he stands there and gives us our crown and says, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were trustworthy with little, and I'm going to entrust to you much. You were faithful with what I gave to you. You can be faithful in much. May we live dignified lives that are rooted in a clear conscience and not rooted in the things of the world and that our reward would be high standing and a great, great confidence in the faith in Christ Jesus.